We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And away we go, episode 148 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, September 20th, 2021, the day after a mixed day of NFC East results from a Washington football team perspective. We did have Kyle Shanahan's and Trent Williams's San Francisco 49ers winning at the Philadelphia Eagles, 17-11. That was great to see. You see, who says that Kyle and Trent don't like Washington? Uh, that game guaranteed that Washington would be in first place come the end of week two. But unfortunately, we also got the Los Angeles Chargers failing in a close game against the Dallas Cowboys as the Chargers now have done Washington dirty twice in two weeks. In this 2021 season, a 2017 home loss to the Cowboys on a Greg Zerline 56-yard field goal as time expired in the fourth quarter. Yeah, a win on a walk-off field goal in week two. Imagine that. Well, hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Hope you had a nice weekend. Hope you enjoyed your Washington football team-less weekend of the 30-29 walk-off win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night. It was nice knowing that our team had already won in week two, wasn't it? Uh, Though, of course, now you wonder about week three. Washington at the Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon at one. You could say that the Bills didn't look bad on Sunday afternoon. A 35-0 win at the Miami Dolphins. Uh, This Sunday will not be easy for the W to the F to the T. Well, Washington's defense needs to be better. We all know that. Will Washington's defense be better? What's going on with Washington's defense? Next segment, I have for you a deep dive on Washington's defense. We will attempt to get to the bottom of what's going on and how the issues can be fixed. Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Friday spent a lot of time talking 
about Washington's defense. I also will talk Taylor Heineke and Dustin Hopkins of some things that Ron had to say. What a college football weekend for Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. A lot to take in. I'll discuss what went on with each team for the Terrapins, a 2017 win at Illinois on Friday night. For the number 15 Hokies, a 27-21 loss at West Virginia on Saturday afternoon. The Hokies in the red zone, a disaster as that game went on. And for the Cavaliers, a bonkers 59-39 loss at number 21 North Carolina on Saturday night. As yes, my three Goldilocks plays did deliver a three and a weekend. We call that profitable, people. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, Snoop, that's what we do. Uh, what the Nationals and Orioles have done this season is not pitch well. Uh, and man, was that in effect over the weekend with the Nats losing two or three games to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park and the O's getting swept at the Boston Red Sox. So get to what happened with the Nats and the O's bit later in the show. Although the Nats did have a shutout win on Sunday afternoon, 3-0 the final over the Rockies, as Paolo Espino was very good once again. Amazing but true, Paolo Espino is the most reliable pitcher on the Nats this season, and that tells you all you need to know about this Nats season. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Philip C., the MD on Taylor Heineke. Writes Philip, I, for one, am excited about Taylor Heineke. As a former athlete, I can attest that some players just have the it factor. They may not be the star players or the best athletes, but they are the players that always come through, never seem to wither in clutch situations, and just know how to get the job done. They are ballers, gamers, etc., etc. Some people do have an appreciation of this phenomenon. Others simply don't understand it. It is, admittedly, an ethereal quality that is hard to quantify, but it is undeniably present in the play of Taylor Heineke. Just hope he can stay healthy because at the very least, he is fun to watch. Uh, Yes, he is. There's no question about that. And yes, there very much is an it factor with Taylor Heineke. Ron Rivera keeps referencing it and we all keep seeing it. As you said, this isn't something that you can quantify and this can definitely be something that can be overused as an explanation for success, but those things don't mean that the it factor doesn't exist. Uh, I do think that the it factor exists, and the it factor in combination with Heineke's athleticism, his decisiveness, his comfort in Scott Turner's offense have led to what we've seen. Email from Ed Bowen on Taylor Heineke. Writes Ed, personally, I'm open to Heineke being the starting quarterback. I think the WFT should evaluate him over a period of time and give him a fair opportunity to establish himself as the team should with any quarterback on the roster. I find the disparity of opinions on Heineke amusing. If Heineke had been drafted in the first round of 2020 and everything else happened exactly the same, they draft Chase Young too, Alex Smith, late run to the playoffs, starts first game against Tampa Bay in the playoffs, then there would be no taters. (laughs) Everyone would be screaming, why didn't they play him earlier in 2020? If Heineke had been drafted in, say, the fourth round of the 2020 draft and everything else happened exactly the same, then the fan base would think the WFT found a mid-round gem and would want to see where this goes. But because Heineke is an anomaly floating around the NFL and XFL and was a hair's breadth away from retiring, he isn't afforded the same consideration amongst many in the fan base. Excellent email, Ed. You are so right about what you wrote. Uh, It is so true that how a guy enters the NFL matters so much 
in how that guy is viewed and in the opportunities that that guy receives. If I hear one more time that Taylor Heineke was a backup in the XFL, I'm going to scream, okay? That has become a familiar refrain of the taters, okay? The Taylor haters. Uh, Well, he was a backup in the XFL. Okay, fine. He was a backup in the XFL. So what? What matters more, that he was a backup in the XFL or that he has played really well over four games with the Washington football team? This stuff that happened in the XFL doesn't matter as much as the stuff that's happening now. Anything that happened in the past doesn't matter as much as the stuff that's happening now. Maybe the XFL got it wrong. I mean, when did the XFL become this great judge of who's good and who isn't? The XFL can't even stay in business for more than five minutes, okay? I get that there are questions about Taylor Heineke. There should be questions. The sample size remains small, but this outright dismissal of him as an NFL quarterback and certainly as a QB1 by some fans and by more than a few in the media has been ridiculous to me, given what he has done with Washington so far. You aren't certain about anything right now. I'm not certain about anything right now, but that goes in both directions. We're not certain how great he can be, but we also shouldn't be so certain about what he can't be. Well, don't ever dismiss the importance of the health of your skin. Uh, If you have questions or concerns regarding your skin, contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan and a big listener of this podcast. And operating under Dr. Verghese's direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, to have your questions answered, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell Dr. Verghese and the Institute that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301 396 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. I will get to the latest in the phenomenon, the craze, the mania that is Taylor Heineke next segment. But right now, I want to talk about the Washington football team's defense. I think that everyone recognizes that as glorious, as stupendous, as euphoric as Washington's 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night was, there are many things that Washington needs to work on. And the biggest concern right now, remarkably, 
is the defense. Uh, this defense that was supposed to be great has not been great so far this NFL season. And so let's get into what went on defensively for Washington against the Giants, both the bad and the good. So Ron Rivera on Friday did a day after the game Zoom press conference. One of the first things that he got asked about was Washington's difficulty against Daniel Jones as a runner last Thursday night. Jones had nine carries for 95 yards and a touchdown. The Giants' first offensive drive resulted in Daniel Jones' first quarter, second and goal, six-yard shotgun quarterback draw touchdown run on which Cameron Curl failed on an attempted tackle. Also on that drive, the eighth snap of the drive, Daniel Jones, a second and six, 15-yard shotgun read option run. Uh, the Giants' fourth offensive drive resulted in Graham Godot's second quarter, 23-yard field goal. Fifth snap of the drive, Landon Collins completely fooled on the fake in a Daniel Jones second and two, 58-yard shotgun read option touchdown run that, yes, was nullified via a holding penalty on the Giants, but still, this went down as a 46-yard run for Jones. It is no secret that Daniel Jones is mobile. Uh, it is no secret that the read option is a thing in the NFL. The read option has been a thing in the NFL for more than a decade now. Of course, it was Washington that helped to popularize the read option at the NFL level with what Mike and Kyle Shanahan did with Robert Griffin III in 2012. But you know what's funny about the read option at the NFL level? Do you know who was using the read option at the NFL level prior to the Shanahans with RG3? Ron Rivera. His Carolina Panthers made usage of the read option in Cam Newton's rookie season, 2011, which was Ron's first season as Panthers head coach. And you may remember this. I'll never forget this. Washington lost at the Panthers in that 2011 season. And Mike Shanahan, during his postgame press conference for that game, talked about how Washington wasn't prepared enough and or didn't do a good enough job with the Panthers' college-style plays. And I've always felt that that game opened Mike's eyes to what was possible with the read option at the NFL level. Anyway, the point is that Ron Rivera knows the read option. And yet Daniel Jones ran wild last Thursday night. Ron on Friday on what he saw on the multiple significant runs by Daniel Jones in Washington's win over the Giants at FedEx Field. Saw correctable, just lack of discipline a couple times. We went diving down inside on the play action where we shouldn't have been. That's frustrating because we prepared for it. You know, something that we've seen in the past. Uh, he has uh, exploited that in the past. Uh, he did it last week and he did it again this week. So that's disappointing. That will be pointed out and we're going to work to correct it because that's honestly, it, it's, it's, it's something that's very frustrating for, for, for us as coaches I know for the players because, you know, they're trusting their teammates to do their job. And, you know, we've got to be disciplined enough to do the things we're supposed to. Yeah, you do, especially considering what's next, a game at the Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon at 1. Josh Allen is one of the biggest quarterback run threats in the NFL. Allen in the Bills' 35-0 win at the Miami Dolphins this past Sunday afternoon, five carries, 35 yards. Ron on Friday on what Washington can do to be better against the read option moving forward, especially given that Josh Allen is next. You ask these guys to be disciplined, you know, and, and try not to make every play. I mean, our guys want to make plays, and that's that's the one thing we can accept is that these are guys who are trying hard, they're, they're, but, but they can't see too much. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we see a lot of things, and the things that we focus on are things that we react to, and, and if we're not putting our eyes where they belong – 
you know, we're going to get in trouble. Like we ask guys that are coming off the edge, hey, you, you have, a, you have a, a, a target area that you aim at. That's the outside leg of the quarterback. Why? Because if he's going to pull it, he's going to step your direction right away. So if you start to see that, you've got to settle and sit and wait. If he doesn't, he turns the other, then crash down. But, you know, when we watch their heads and we see where they're looking, you know they're not looking at the right place. And, and that's the thing that we've got to get across to the guys is that you've got to be disciplined. You've got to trust that that's, that that's what's going to happen. And, and really, that's part of the defense. And that's the, that's the part that we've got to be able to get, get them to understand. Yeah, and it's disappointing that that understanding hasn't already been in effect. I don't get that. Uh, another problem for Washington's defense against the Giants on Thursday night, and this also was a problem in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one, pass catchers being so wide open. How many times over Washington's first two games have you said to yourself, how did he get so wide open? Uh, Washington in the win over the Giants allowed Daniel Jones to average 7.78 yards per pass attempt, 249 yards on 32 pass attempts, and too often allowed Giants pass catchers to be wide open. Giants' seventh offensive drive resulted in Daniel Jones' third quarter, second and 10, 33-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Darius Slayton, who beat William Jackson the third in press coverage. Seventh snap of the drive, Daniel Jones, a third and seven, 19-yard shotgun completion to receiver Sterling Shepard, who was wide open in the middle of the field. Uh, the Giants' eighth offensive drive resulted in Grand Godot's early fourth quarter 52-yard field goal, second snap of the drive, and the uh, third to last snap of the third quarter. John Bostic got torched by tight end Caden Smith on a Daniel Jones first and 10, 21-yard shotgun completion to Smith. The Giants' ninth offensive drive resulted in Grand Godot's fourth quarter 55-yard field goal. First snap of the drive, Daniel Jones a first and 10, 21-yard under center play action completion to receiver Sterling Shepard, who was wide open thanks to uh, John Bostic tripping over Shepard's feet and falling down. Fifth snap of the drive, receiver Darius Slayton wide open for a touchdown thanks to a total blown coverage, but Daniel Jones slightly overthrew Slayton, and Slayton did not extend enough to make the catch, and he was ultimately guilty of a drop on a first and 10 shotgun incompletion. Oh, what could have been from a Giants perspective there. Specific to that play, what was that? What the heck happened? How did Slayton get so wide open? Ron Rivera on Friday. There was a, a lack of communication. We miscommunicated. Uh, one of us should have stayed high, and we didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we have seen too many communication breakdowns with this Washington defense so far. That to me is troubling. I mean, that was something that happened with Joe Barry as Washington defensive coordinator, with Greg Minuski as Washington defensive coordinator. That's not something that's supposed to be happening with Ron Rivera as head coach and Jack Del Rio as defensive coordinator. Ron, on Friday, on what exactly the communication problems are. Your communications really is, you know, once we're playing the coverage, now we get a certain specific type formation. Hey, this is this is the this is the technique we're going to play, mm -hmm. and understanding where that leverage is going to come from, and then how I'm going to react to it. Right. Okay, so now you know we some of these things we have to read on the run. You know, release of routes, combination of routes, high versus low, um, crossers coming, um, combinations. What are those combinations and we all have to be on the same page. So if we get a guy coming in and he's running a dig across the middle, 
and the guy behind him was going to run a post, the last one we wanted to see somebody jump the dig to right. make sure we stay high on top of it. So, again, some of that communication is verbal, and some of it is really just understanding what I'm reading and saying. Okay, all of that makes sense, but why has the communication been such a problem? You know, Washington has plenty of veterans in its secondary. William Jackson III, veteran. Kendall Fuller, veteran. Bobby McCain, veteran. Landon Collins, veteran. Uh, Yeah, Benjamin St. Juice and Cameron Curl are young, but these communication problems should not be happening. And the thing is, these communication problems have led to some big games for opposing receivers so far. The loss to the Chargers in week one, Keenan Allen, nine receptions for 100 yards on 13 targets. Mike Williams, eight receptions for 82 yards and a touchdown on 12 targets. The win over the Giants in week two, Sterling Shepard, nine receptions for 94 yards on 10 targets. If you play fantasy football, the play right now is any WR1 or WR2 facing Washington. Right on Friday on both the Chargers and the Giants, having had success against Washington in terms of getting balls to receivers? Well, I think the big thing about it, more so than anything else, is when you look at some of the, you know, and talk about the Justin Herbert, you look at some of those back shoulder throws that were made, and, and those balls were on the money, and those were, a couple of them were some pretty damn good catches, mm-hmm. you know. And so sometimes you got to give them credit because, you know, they get paid as well. Um, but if you look at our game and you look at how many PBUs there were as well, you know, uh, again, that's going to happen. There's going to be a battle. Um, things are, are, are competitive, you know, and, and those are things that we got to continue to work on and get corrected. All right, so Ron brought up the PBUs, the pass breakups. Uh, those also are called pass defenses. Uh, Washington officially only had four pass defenses in the win over the Giants on Thursday night. Now, I know that the team keeps its own internal statistics, so maybe those numbers have Washington as having had way more than four PBUs, uh, but I did want to note that. Look, I talked on the podcast a few weeks ago about the nature of defense in today's NFL. Something that doesn't get nearly enough attention is the reality of defense in the modern pass-happy NFL. Truly dominant defense is perhaps no longer possible. I really do think that we need to recalibrate what we consider to be great defense. I did a whole thing on this in episode 119 of the podcast. So given that, I do think that we shouldn't just go off on Washington's defense because every defense in today's NFL gets got. The league is a passing league. The league is an offensively oriented league like never before. So I think that has to be taken into consideration. That said, Washington's defense needs to be better. Like both of the following are true. One, the context of today's NFL matters a ton when evaluating defense. But two, even given that, Washington's defense needs to be better. And I'll tell you something that has been as frustrating as anything with Washington's defense so far. What has happened on the first offensive drive for the opposing team in each game? The loss to the Chargers in week one, Chargers' first offensive drive, what was the first offensive drive of the game, a 10-play, 75-yard drive, resulted in running back Austin Eckler's first quarter, first and goal, three-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. The win over the Giants in week two, Giants' first offensive drive, an 11-play, 79-yard drive, resulted in that Daniel Jones' first quarter, second and goal, six-yard shotgun quarterback draw touchdown run. Why has Washington's defense looked particularly inept on the first offensive drive for the opposing team in each game. Ron Rivera 
on Friday. Well, the big thing, uh, you know, and you feel, again, teams go down, score on the first, the, their first possession. You know, again, it goes to certain things that we've got to do in terms of playing discipline. Okay, we can't jump our gaps. We can't, we can't miscommunicate, and we can't create penalties. So, again, it's, it falls back on us. We've got to be better. Yeah, so you keep hearing the same themes, discipline, communication. Something that was interesting from Ron on Friday was that he was asked whether Chase Young and Montez Sweat are being chipped more and said that they are. Here was that. Yes, you know what? I, 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 was, I, I actually checked it and went through it. I, didn't, I don't have the tally, but that was one of the things that I was watching today to see how many times um, you know, we are being presented with the, with the opportunity of them being chipped whether it's by the back or just a tight end alignment. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that you really do see uh, a little bit more so than when we watched the tape from the Giants game versus Denver. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Denver did – they did do it against Denver because of Denver's defensive ends as well. Um, But I have a sneaky suspicion based on what I've counted or or what what I marked is they chipped a little bit more against us than they did last week. So – to, to, to answer your question, yes. The, the numbers I, I don't have specifically right now. I do have – that was one of the things that I did intentionally wanted to double-check. All right, so that's interesting. So with teams chipping Chase Young and Montez Sweatmore, what can Washington do? How does Washington combat that? More from Ron on Friday. Yeah, I mean, the first one of the basic ones is your, your defensive tackles have got to play – and play, you know, like like what we got from uh, from Jonathan. You know, Jonathan played an exceptionally good game uh, for as many tackles and sacks and quarterback pressures and effects he had. I mean, that's that's a big part of of, of what you've got to get uh, when that happens to, to 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 guys, other guys, is because now you're probably being singled up, um, and that's something that has to happen. Well, you heard Ron mention Jonathan Allen. He has been great so far this season. And so let's get into some of what's gone well for Washington's defense so far. Because the defense, to me, is far from a lost cause. No Washington defensive player has been better through two games than Jonathan Allen. Ron on Friday on Allen's fast start to the season. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the guys around him. You know, he, he, he benefits from having having really solid teammates, guys that, you know, that, 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 command a certain type of uh, protections out there. And at the same time, just his own natural ability to make plays as well. So it's, 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 a, it's a really good unit. Uh, and I do believe that unit can give us more as well. Like I said, I think both our, our fronts are, are solid. And I think they're going to get better as we continue to, the, this season going forward. Yeah, Allen in the win over the Giants finished with two sacks, three quarterback hits, and three tackles for loss. He proved the NFL's next-gen stats totaled five pressures. Allen for Pro Football Focus had six pressures, a pass rush grade of 89.0, and a pass rush win rate of 27.3%. Giants' first offensive drive did result in that Daniel Jones' first quarter, second and goal, six-yard shotgun quarterback draw touchdown run. But the fifth snap of that drive, Jonathan Allen, a second-and-eight sack of Daniel Jones for a two-yard loss. The Giants' third offensive drive resulted in a second quarter, three and out. Third snap of the drive, Jonathan Allen abused center Billy Price, who was acquired by the Giants via trade with the Cincinnati Bengals on August 30th, and are out to a third and three sack of Daniel Jones for a seven-yard loss. Allen essentially delivered a German suplex 
to Jones on the sack. Uh, Giants' sixth offensive drive, opening drive of the second half, resulted in Graham Gano's third quarter 40-70-yard field goal. Sixth half of the drive, Jonathan Allen tackled running back Saquon Barkley on a second and six under center handoff run for a one-yard loss. So Allen was good on Thursday night. Montez Sweat was good on Thursday night. Sweat had a sack. Uh, He, per the NFL's next-gen stats, totaled a career-high seven pressures. Uh, Sweat for Pro Football Focus had six pressures, a pass rush grade of 79.1 and a pass rush win rate of 21.6%. Giants' second offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt, six snap of the drive. Montez Sweat, a third and seven sack of Daniel Jones for a six yard loss. Also getting pushed on the play were Chase Young and Matt Ioannidis. This was the play actually on which Ioannidis got hurt, uh, although he did return to the game. Giants' seventh offensive drive resulted in Daniel Jones's third quarter, second and 10, 33 yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Darius Slayton. Fifth snap of the drive, Chase Young tackled receiver Sterling Shepard on a first and 10 under center handoff end around run for a nine yard loss off Montez Sweat, blowing up the play, though failing on the attempted tackle. Here's the truth. Washington's pass rush in the win over the Giants was really good of having been abysmal in the loss to the Chargers. Washington on Thursday night totaled four sacks, seven quarterback hits, and eight tackles for loss. Washington, per the NFL's next-gen stats, pressured Daniel Jones 17 times on 36 dropbacks, good for a team pressure rate of 47.2%. The pass rush on Thursday night, contrary to what you may have heard elsewhere, was good. That needs to be noted. More from Ron Rivera on Friday. I did like some individual play. I really did. I, I thought some of the guys on the defensive line were outstanding individually. Um, collectively, they were good. Um, and then we had the mistakes where we, you know, we dive down inside and we allow running back to pop one on us. You know, um, that's disappointing. Yes, it is. But do you know who else had a good game for Washington defensively on Thursday night? Jamin Davis. Yeah. Jamin had the highest overall grade for pro football focus of any Washington defensive player in the game at 89.0. And a play that really stands out happened on the Giants' fourth offensive drive, resulted in Graham Gano's second quarter 23-yard field goal, the 10th snap of the drive, and the snap right before the field goal on a third and eight at the Washington 11, Jamin Davis tackled receiver Sterling Shepard on a third and eight six-yard reception. Ron Rivera on Friday on how Jamin Davis played in the win over the Giants. Much better. He's getting a little bit more comfortable, a little bit better feel. Um, You could see him really um, starting to flow and understanding those things. I mean, he's going to make mistakes, and, and that's what rookies do. But uh, it was it was it was a it was a nice, vast improvement to, to last week. Uh, you saw some of his uh, his quickness and speed, and, and some of the coverage things as well. So that was good to see. Uh, he is he is making strides and 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 heading in the right direction, and and he'll get a good bit of work this week coming up. Now, it is worth noting that Jamin Davis did not play a ton in the win over the Giants. Uh, Jamin played on just thirty nine percent of Washington's defensive snaps, as for a second time in as many games this season, Cole Holcomb and John Bostic played more than Jamin. Uh, Holcomb played on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps for a second consecutive game. Bostic played on 57% of Washington's defensive snaps. Some other playtime observations for Washington's defense in the win over the Giants. Edge rushers, Chase Young played on 91% of Washington's defensive snaps. Montez Sweat played on 88% of Washington's defensive snaps. I was happy to see that. This is off Sweat having only played on 65% of Washington's defensive snaps 
in the loss to the Chargers, and Sweat playing more against the Chargers meant that James Smith-Williams played less. Uh, He played on just 16% of Washington's defensive snaps, of having played on 37% of Washington's defensive snaps in the loss to the Chargers. And that, to me, is the way that things should be. More of Montez Sweat, less of James Smith-Williams. All due respect to him, whatever his last name is. Very confident in what we've seen from, 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 from James William Smith. Yeah, James Smith-Williams, James William Smith, whatever. Uh, interior defensive lineman. Jonathan Allen played on 81% of Washington's defensive snaps. This off having only played on 58% of Washington's defensive snaps in the loss to the Chargers. So Jonathan Allen, like Montez Sweat, played appreciably more in week two as compared to in week one. Uh, Allen, just for comparison's sake, in the 2020 regular season, played on 77.42% of Washington's defensive snaps. Uh, Deron Payne played on 74% of Washington's defensive snaps in the win over the Giants. Matt Ioannidis played on 62% of Washington's defensive snaps. Tim Settle played on 12% of Washington's defensive snaps. For the corners, William Jackson the third played on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps. Kendall Fuller played on 97%. Benjamin St. Juice, 75%. So a whole lot of nickel employed by Washington on Thursday night. I mean, William Jackson, the third, 100% of the defensive snaps. Kendall Fuller, 97% of the defensive snaps. Benjamin St. Juice, 75% of the defensive snaps. Uh, neither Tory McTire nor Troy Apke played on any of Washington's defensive snaps. And with the safeties, uh, Landon Collins played on 75% of Washington's defensive snaps. Cameron Curl played on 74% of Washington's defensive snaps, off having only played on 46% of Washington's defensive snaps and the loss to the Chargers. Bobby McCain played on 54% of Washington's defensive snaps. And DeShazer Everett did not play on any of Washington's defensive snaps for the second time in as many games this season. Look, there is too much talent on this Washington defense for it to be as underwhelming as it has been so far. But these discipline issues, these miscommunication issues, these penalty issues, you know, Washington has had a lot of defensive penalties through two games. Uh, All of these issues need to stop. As Ron said, these issues are correctable, but they need to be corrected, especially with a game at Josh Allen and the Bills this Sunday afternoon. Well, if your lawn is something that needs to be corrected, contact Weedman. Weedman cares for your lawn so you don't have to. Enjoy your weekends, enjoy your free time, and let Weedman give you the great-looking lawn that you deserve. And Weedman has a very special offer going on right now for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal care that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. I know that sounds simple, and it is, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not to someone somewhere in like the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have, say, a certain area of your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. Uh, you're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn, if you're not satisfied with who is treating your lawn, make the switch 
to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. Now, a beautiful spring lawn actually starts now. And so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. A fall tune-up at a great price. An aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. That price is a steal. That price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call the following number, 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so that you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so that you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. Uh, you can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. So have you seen or heard this stat regarding Taylor Heineke? As if the Heineke hype needed more fuel, as if Heineke mania needed more of a boost. So Heineke now has made three career NFL starts, two in the regular season and one in the postseason. He, over those three starts, has totaled 93 completions. It turns out that the 93 completions are the most by a quarterback over his first three starts in NFL history. Yeah, NFL history. As Chase Young sang last season while mic'd up, Heineke. Let's get it there, Heineke. Heineke. Yes, Chase. So Taylor Heineke is the Washington football team's starting quarterback now. He was outstanding in the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night. Ryan Fitzpatrick reportedly is expected to be out until at least November with his right hip injury. For the record, this was Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Friday on the approach to who is truly Washington's starting quarterback. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to take it one game at a time. We'll continue to progress as we go through this season. Okay? Okay. Uh, I liked how Ron ended that short answer with an okay. Uh, that was one of those patronizing, sarcastic okays. Like, I'm going to tell you that I'm taking this quarterback thing week to week, even though I have my thoughts about what's going on for us at quarterback, but I'm not going to tell you anything. Okay? In fact, that's probably how Ron should have said that okay. Okay. He should have said it with like three or four consecutive M's and then the K. An M-K. Okay. Yeah, I think an M-K would have been appropriate uh, in that spot. But you know what? If you're Ron Rivera, this actually isn't that hard. If Heineke continues to play well, then he remains Washington's starting quarterback, even when Fitzpatrick is healthy. It would be nuts to bench Heineke if he's playing well in favor of Fitzpatrick, especially given that Fitzpatrick is on a one-year contract. And if Heineke falters, then hopefully you have Fitzpatrick as an option come November, maybe sooner. And of course, you already have Kyle Allen as an option. But Heineke, to me, now controls his own destiny. If he continues to play well and he stays healthy, he is Washington's QB1 
for the rest of this season. We can deal with the long term, i.e. next season and beyond later. For now, it's about this season, it's about this moment, and it's about who is best to be the Washington football team starting quarterback. And let's see if Taylor Heineke, in fact, proves himself to be the best man for the job. Uh, Something that has been as clear as can be about Heineke with Washington is his composure. He does not seem to get rattled. The moment is not too big for him. The chops that he showed on that touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones on Thursday night were so impressive. The fourth quarter, first and 10, 19-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones on a perfectly placed pass to Seals-Jones, who made a nice leaping catch with his arms outstretched above his head near the back right corner of the end zone while being defended by defensive back Adore Jackson. Ensuing extra point gave Washington a 27-26 lead. What a moment that touchdown pass was. FedEx Field was on fire in a matter in which FedEx Field has been very few times since the stadium's inception in 1997. And how about this? Heineke's touchdown pass to Seals-Jones had a completion probability for the NFL's next-gen stats of just 13.7%. That is the lowest completion probability of any Washington touchdown pass since next-gen stats started tracking such data beginning with the 2017 season. Ron Rivera on Friday on whether Heineke's composure is something that he had in Carolina when Ron was Panthers head coach. I think he's had some of it when he was in Carolina, but it's really grown even more so. Um, And I and I and I really do like how he has matured and grown uh, into the position he has for us right now. He has done a nice job. He works extremely hard at it. As I said, there is a lot of confidence, and you see the swagger. And 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 right now, his teammates see it. They recognize it, and they're feeding off of it as well. Yes, they are. Heineke's teammates seem to genuinely like him. Uh, Chase Young seems to love Heineke. Now, another thing about Heineke's performance on Thursday night was that his mobility ended up not being featured all that much. Uh, Heineke finished the game with four carries for six yards. Yeah, he won the game with his arm. Ron on Friday on Heineke staying in the pocket for so much of the win over the Giants. Well, what I liked for the most part as far as his discipline was concerned was was how he went through his... um his progressions. I mean, again, if you look at the touchdown he threw to Ricky Seals Jones was, was a, a, a perfect example of, of him being patient and going through his progressions. One of the things that he's really worked on during training camp and, and you could see it. And because he did that, you know, we didn't see the little combination of his ability to threaten with the run. And because I promise you, I, I know that was in the back of their mind because, you know, he does have that ability to, to move around and, and can, can stretch a play out and find guys downfield. So I think that's something that has really helped him, but you see it helping him in terms of his development. Yeah, you do. And it says a lot about Heineke that he can play so well with his legs not being that much of a factor, as was the case on Thursday night. Now, something that I do want to highlight is Washington's pass protection on Thursday night. The pass protection was much better as compared to what it was in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one. I mentioned on Friday's show, episode 147, that Samuel Cosme had some more issues in the game, and he did. But consider this, Cosme, for pro football focus, allowed zero pressures over 50 pass blocking snaps. Now, that may sound wrong, 
because the lone sack of Heineke involved Cosme. Washington's first offensive drive was the first offensive drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter three and out. The third snap of the drive, Cosme got beat by edge rusher Aziz Ojulari on a third and three sack of Heineke for a 16-yard loss. But Taylor Heineke held on to the ball for too long. That sack was on Heineke. Ron Rivera on Friday confirmed this. Ron, at his day after the game Zoom press conference, said that Heineke, quote, did sack himself, which was disappointing, end quote. This is Ron on Friday on Washington's pass protection in the win over the Giants. I was also very pleased with the way we protected our quarterback. Uh, you know, we threw the ball 46 times, and and, and for the most part, I think Taylor st- stayed upright. Uh, uh, you know, he, he did sack himself, which was disappointing. Uh, but, uh, you know, because um, I, I really do think, though, that he um, – you know, I, I really do think that that the way our 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 protection was, you know, it, it was it was good and and really appreciated that. Yeah. Now, Cosme on Thursday night did commit two penalties. Okay, that can't go unnoted. Uh, Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a first and 10 eight yard under center play action completion to Logan Thomas on the screen, but also on the snap was a 15 yard unnecessary roughness penalty on Samuel Cosme for a helmet-to-helmet hit on defensive backer Dory Jackson. Washington's seventh offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' late third quarter 49-yard field goal. Seventh snap of the drive, Samuel Cosme committed a third and seven, 10-yard holding penalty. You know, Washington has had a penalty problem through two games. Washington has totaled 17 accepted penalties over the first two games of the season. That's not good. Uh, You know what else isn't good? paying 6% or more in commission to your real estate agent for selling your home. Don't do that. Don't accept that. Instead, contact John Grandlin of Real Broker. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John G. is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. You know how Ron Rivera loves position flex? Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, John Granlin offers commission flex, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Granlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G now at 703 703- 537-6747. When you talk to John G, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 
537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, something else from Ron Rivera's day after the game Zoom press conference on Friday worth getting into is the Dustin Hopkins situation. Hopkins delivers. Yes, he did ultimately deliver, although that comes with an asterisk. So Dustin Hopkins in the Washington football team's 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football went three for three on field goals. But of course, he almost didn't. Uh, Hopkins connected on a late third quarter 49-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 2017. Hopkins connected on a fourth quarter 37-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 23-20. Hopkins missed a 48-yard field goal attempt to win the game as time expired in the fourth quarter, but the miss ended up not counting as interior defensive lineman Dexter Lawrence committed a five-yard offside penalty. Hopkins then connected on a game-winning 43-yard field goal on the final snap in the fourth quarter for the 30-29 win. I don't think that it's being overly dramatic to say that Hopkins making that do-over saved his job. I think it's very possible that that's the case. Ron Rivera, on his day after the game Zoom press conference on Friday, got asked by Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com how Ron bakes Hopkins having missed that initial 48-yard field goal attempt that ended up not counting into the evaluation of Hopkins. Here was Ron's answer, and then you'll hear a follow-up exchange. He made the field goal when it counted. Good enough for you. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's good enough for me. I mean, what am I going to do about it other than just say, "Wow, you know, hey, you know, we'll work on it." I mean, it, it happens, and and but right now, what we're going to focus on is the fact that statistically, he's he was three for three last night. I mean, that that's you know that's what we're going to build on. We're 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 going to really try and focus on the development and growth of of, of his confidence as we continue to go forward with this. Um, I get it. He missed. But at the same time, he got a chance to redeem himself, and he did. Um, and so what I want to harp on is the positive. That's, that's what I want to really, truly focus on. Um, and and I, I really think that this is an opportunity for us to continue to grow and go forward. All right, I've got no problem with that answer from Ron. He's sticking by Hopkins. That has been made crystal clear. Uh, it does Ron no good to publicly belabor the reality that Hopkins missed that initial 48-yard field goal attempt that ended up not counting. Now, you perhaps have seen the video of Washington's postgame locker room celebration from Thursday night. In that video, you see Ron Rivera give a game ball to Dustin Hopkins, and the rest of the team reacts very favorably. Ron on Friday on whether he gets the sense that the team is rallying behind Hopkins and wants him to succeed. Absolutely, because if he's successful, we're successful. I think that's probably the thing that you know we, we've got to, again, continue to build on more so than anything else. Um, yeah, was it, was, it, was it a tough miss originally? Yeah, but again, it, it, there was a chance to redeem himself. He got it and he made it. Yeah, and don't forget, Dustin Hopkins is one of the longest tenured Washington players. Uh, Hopkins, Tress Way, Brandon Sheriff, DeShazer Everett, they've all been with Washington for a while. We'll see if Hopkins continues uh, to be with Washington, but Hopkins threw two games officially 
is 6-for-7 on field goals, with the lone miss being a 51-yard attempt. Hopkins was wide left on an early fourth quarter, missed 51-yard field goal attempt in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in Week 1. A wild college football weekend for Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. I'll get to that after this. Washington football team season is in full swing, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young Sweat and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with McLaurin and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Packer, at Carr and the Raiders, or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K.com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let us talk area college football from week three. Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Virginia were in action. Each team was a popular public play. Each team ended up being the wrong side. 
That's why you don't just go with the public. That's why you don't just go with Johnny Square Play. That's why you go with Goldilocks, which told you to take each team's opponent and what ended up happening, a 3-0 and weekend for Goldilocks. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, Snoop. Exactly. All right, we'll start with Maryland. The Terrapins improved to 3-0 with a 2017 walk-off win at Illinois on Friday night. A very close game, despite Illinois having not been a good team. This game had reverse line movement and thus reeked of being a game in which the Terps would have issues despite Illinois coming into the game at just 1-2. and two. The Terps did not cover, but the Terps did win. And the Terps are 3-0 and for the first time since 2016. And how about this? A little more than 24 hours after the Washington football teams, Dustin Hopkins connected on a 43-yard walk-off field goal to beat the New York Giants 30-29 at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football. Terps kicker Joseph Petrino drilled a 32-yard field goal as time expired in the fourth quarter for this win at Illinois. Petrino went 2-3 on field goals in the game. Each attempt a 32-yarder. This was not a great game for the Terps offensively, though, uh, despite Illinois' previous defensive struggles. The Terps were sluggish offensively for most of the game. The game was tied at three at the half. The Terps went just two for 10 on third downs. Uh, The Terps in the third quarter had lost fumbles on two consecutive offensive plays. Running back Teon Fleet Davis had a third quarter loss fumble on a reception, and then running back Penny Boone had a third quarter loss fumble on a carry. You also had a killer penalty, which was hard to see, but I guess it happened. You know, we're still not entirely sure about this, but the Terps in the fourth quarter had a third and 10, 41-yard touchdown pass from quarterback Talia Tungavailoa to receiver Dante Demas Jr., negated thanks to a 15-yard personal foul penalty by running back Isaiah Jacobs for a chop block. However, I mentioned Talia. He overall was good, and he was really good late in the game. If you're a Terps fan, you have got to love what we're seeing from Talia Tungavailoa so far. So Talia in this win at Illinois on Friday night, 32 of 43 for 350 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions. He took three sacks. He had a big second and five, 35-yard shotgun read option run on the second offensive play of the second half. And he led two scoring drives in the fourth quarter to complete a comeback from a 17-10 fourth quarter deficit. Talia, over those two drives, seven of eight for 101 yards and a touchdown. Not bad. Uh, Baby Tua is killing it so far for Maryland this season. Talia had a first and 10, 10-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Teon Fleet Davis with 2.13 left in the fourth quarter. The ensuing extra point tied the game at 17, and Talia on the drive that resulted in Joseph Petrino's game-winning 32-yard field goal as time expired, had a first and 10, 26-yard shotgun completion to receiver Rakim Jarrett on the first snap of the drive, which started at the Illinois 46. Talia has been good in each of the Terps' three games. He continues to come off as the Terps' first truly good starting quarterback in years. I mean, the Terps haven't had true high-level quarterback play since Scott McBrien in 2003, Uh, Talia may be changing that. Also, the Terps' defense was very good in this win at Illinois. The Terps held Illinois to just 17 points and just 4.72 yards per play. The Terps held Illinois quarterback Brandon Peters to just 10 of 26 passing, intercepted him once, 
and sacked him six times. And the pass rush was the thing. Three Terps each had two sacks. Defensive lineman Sam Okwanu and Greg Rose and linebacker Darrell Chammy. The pass rush was huge on Illinois' final offensive drive, which resulted in a punt on a fourth and 39 at the Illinois 7. The ensuing Terps offensive drive, what was the game-winning drive, started at the Illinois 46. The final snaps of that final Illinois offensive drive resulted in back-to-back sacks by Rose, followed by a third and 28 intentional grounding penalty by Brandon Peters, who threw the ball to an offensive lineman on a totally illegal play and who was being hurried by Okwanu. Rose, by the way, a walk-on who was awarded a scholarship in August, and head coach Mike Loxley actually had Kevin Durant announce that Rose was getting a scholarship. But tremendous job by the Terrapins pass rush. Also, defensive back Nick Cross, another big play for him, a third-quarter interception, finished with three pass breakups. The interception came one play after that third-quarter loss fumble by running back Penny Boone. So really nice job by Maryland's defense. This was not an easy win for Maryland, but this was a win. Next up for the Terps, home to Kent State this Saturday afternoon at 3.30. How about what happened to Virginia Tech on Saturday afternoon? The number 15 Hokies falling to 2-1 and one with a 27-21 loss at West Virginia. Oh, what could have been for the Hokies. The Hokies rallied from a 27-7 third quarter deficit to cut the Mountaineers lead to 27-21. The Hokies got a huge fourth quarter interception by defensive back Jermaine Waller on a third and 10 at the Mountaineers 25, giving the Hokies a first and 10 at the Mountaineers 17 with 2-11 left in the fourth quarter. I mean, the game was right there. The Hokies eventually had a first and goal at the three, but the Hokies failed. Running back Jalen Holston got stuffed on back-to-back runs, and quarterback Braxton Burmeister then had back-to-back incompletions for a turnover on downs. The Hokies' red zone offense was a mess as they in the game went just one for four in the red zone. The one was a second and 10, 20-yard pistol handoff touchdown run by running back Raheem Blackshear with one second left in the third quarter. Now, Blackshear also had a 78-yard kickoff return in the second quarter, but the ensuing Hokies' offensive drive stalled inside the West Virginia 10 and resulted in a missed 24-yard field goal attempt by kicker John Parker Romo on the penultimate snap of the first half. Like I said, major red zone problems for Virginia Tech in this game. Uh, With Burmeister, you know, you can't say that Burmeister was great because he had the back-to-back gold-to-go shotgun completions from the West Virginia Four over the Hokies' final two offensive plays. But Burmeister was pressured a bunch in this game and made some really big plays. Uh, Burmeister went 19-31 to for 223 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. He was sacked to staggering six times, but he also made some plays with his legs. Burmeister had a first-quarter, second-and-nine, 23-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to receiver Tavion Robinson on a great throw into the end zone. Burmeister had a fourth quarter, third and 17, 29-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Jalen Holston, although Holston did the bulk of the work. He caught the ball around the 26 and then made multiple Mountaineers players guilty of missed tackles. And Burmeister had a late third quarter, third and 24, 25-yard shotgun scramble on which he ran by multiple Mountaineers defenders, made a great cut to his right to the outside, and then stumbled and fought for extra yardage to get the first down. That was some play by Burmeister. Two snaps later was the second and 10, 20-yard pistol handoff touchdown run by running back Raheem Blackshear with one second left in the third quarter. Uh, I thought the Tech's defense was mixed 
A terrible moment early in the game. Tech giving up a first quarter, second and 10, 80-yard shotgun handoff, read option, touchdown run to West Virginia running back Letty Brown, who finished with 19 carries for a buck 61 and a touchdown. Tech was so-so against the pass. Tech allowed West Virginia quarterback Jared Dagey to throw for 193 yards on 25 pass attempts. That's 7.72 yards per pass attempt. That's not great, but that's also not awful. Uh, Dagey completed just 15 of those 25 pass attempts, so that was pretty good from a Tech perspective. Tech also had the big fourth quarter interception, so that was good, but Tech also had just one sack. That was not so good. Uh, Tech did hold West Virginia to 3 of 12 on third down. So, you know, like I said, mixed performance defensively. This game really was about the red zone fails for Virginia Tech, like plain and simple. And that was a killer way to end up losing the game. Again, you have a first and goal at the three, down by six, and you end up not scoring the touchdown. Next up for the Hokies, home to Richmond this Saturday at noon. And then there was Virginia, which competed in a video game over the weekend. Uh, I thought I was playing Bill Walsh college football on my Sega Genesis again. Uh, the Cavaliers fell to 2-1 and one with a 59-39 loss at number 21 North Carolina on Saturday night. This game was nuts. The Cavaliers and Tar Heels combined for 98 points and 1,273 net yards of offense. The Wahoos defense was atrocious. The Hoos allowed North Carolina to generate 699 total net yards of offense. The Hoos allowed North Carolina to average 10.3 yards per play. The Hoos did not force a single punt in the game. The Hoos allowed North Carolina quarterback Sam Howell to go 14 of 21 for 307 yards. 307 yards on 21 pass attempts. That's 14.62 yards per pass attempt. Howell had five touchdown passes versus one interception. The Hoos totaled just one sack, and the Hoos allowed Howell to have 15 carries for 112 yards. Virginia's defense on Saturday night was a rumor of Virginia's secondary that last season was bad, but so far this season had been okay, was back to looking bad on Saturday night. And the shame of this game is that really an all-time performance by Cavs quarterback Brennan Armstrong was wasted. Armstrong was outstanding for a second consecutive game. 39 of 54 for 554 yards, four touchdowns, and an interception. He took three sacks. Armstrong's 554 passing yards, a single game Virginia record, and the most ever by a quarterback against North Carolina. Armstrong became the first quarterback in Virginia history to pass for at least 300 yards in each of three consecutive games. Uh, he has been so good so far this season. Armstrong is number 16 in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR at 78.6. Howell, by the way, is number 15 at 80.7. A few other things from this game. Uh, Virginia got outrushed big time. Virginia had just 21 total net yards rushing to North Carolina's 392. Again, Virginia's defense, a rumor. Uh, who's running back Wayne Taulapapa had two carries for minus two yards and a touchdown and suffered a concussion. Uh, the Cavs had a bunch of penalties. The Cavs had nine accepted penalties for 102 yards. Uh, the loss snapped Virginia's four-game winning streak against North Carolina. Uh, I said this on Goldilocks on Friday's show, episode 147. Carolina owed Virginia in a lot of ways, given that Virginia had won the four straight against Carolina. And there's this, Virginia with this loss now is 8-23 and 23 
in games away from Scott Stadium under head coach Bronco Mendenhall. That's a problem. UVA under Bronco has not won enough on the road. Uh, Next up for the Cavs is a home game, home to Wake Forest, this Friday night at 7. Well, the inevitable became official for the Nationals over the weekend. They were officially eliminated from postseason contention. Yeah, that had actually not yet happened prior to this past weekend, but the Nats 9-8 loss to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park on Friday night officially eliminated the Nats from both National League East contention and wildcard contention. So we now have officially the Nats not making the MLB playoffs for two consecutive seasons for the first time since the 2010 and 2011 seasons. That is pretty remarkable, right? That it had been 10 years since we last had the Nats not making the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. That is a credit to the Nats organization for sure. Uh, But this current season is an indictment of the organization. The pitching is atrocious, and we certainly saw that for so much of this series loss to the Rockies at Nationals Park. Although the pitching was not atrocious on Sunday afternoon. Uh, A 3-0 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park to avoid a three-game sweep, a shutout win for Davey Martinez and the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, the boys. Uh, their first shutout win since June 18th. Nats now are 61-88 and 88 on the season, so two wins away from making sure that the team does not lose 100 games this season. But with the pitching, here's all that you need to know. In a series in which a highly regarded prospect a $140 million pitcher, and a journeyman with the Nats starting pitchers. It was the journeyman who gave the Nats by far their best outing from a starting pitcher. That, in a nutshell, is the Nats pitching in the 2021 season. Paolo Espino was terrific once again. Uh, Paolo in the 3-0 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Five and two-thirds scoreless innings. He had seven strikeouts versus three walks. He gave up just three hits, a double, and two singles. He didn't throw a lot of strikes and wasn't pitch efficient through 52 strikes versus 39 balls on 91 pitches. So 91 pitches over five and two thirds innings. But Paolo was effective. The run prevention was there. Five and two thirds scoreless innings. And he had a bunch of strikeouts, seven strikeouts. Paolo now this season has an ERA of 394 in 102 and two thirds innings over 33 games, including 17 starts. There are two pitchers who have an ERA under four with at least 75 innings for the Nats this season. Max Scherzer and Paolo Espino. Yes, that's it. Max Scherzer and Paolo Espino. That, my friends, is the state of the Nats pitching in the 2021 season. But that also is a credit to Paolo Espino, who was taken by the Cleveland Indians in the 10th round of the 2006 MLB draft had barely pitched at the major league level until this season, his age 34 season, and yet has been one of the more valuable pitchers, if not players, on the Nats this season. I give the guy all the credit in the world, and he was really good in this win over the Rockies on Sunday afternoon, unlike the Nationals' first two starting pitchers in this series. So Patrick Corbin was terrible in Game 2 of the series. Corbin was terrible again. Uh, The 6-0 loss to the Rockies at Nationals Park on Saturday. Corbin, six runs, five earned in four innings. He gave up nine hits, two homers, four doubles, 
and three singles. He issued three walks. He did have five strikeouts, but he threw 87 pitches over the four innings. Corbin in the top of the first allowed three runs, two earned. The Nats were down 2 nothing after just three pitches by Corbin, who gave up a leadoff double to Garrett Hampson, followed by a first pitch two run opposite field homer by Brendan Rodgers to right center field. Corbin in the top of the fourth allowed three runs as he allowed three consecutive Rockies to reach base with one out, gave up a one out five pitch walk at Garrett Hampson, a one out single by Brendan Rodgers, and a one out three run opposite field homer by Trevor Story to right field for a 6-0 Rockies lead. I mean, Corbin just cannot get his act together this season. The struggles started last season. This is a second straight bad season for Corbin, but this season has been much worse than last season. Patrick Corbin, over 29 starts now this season, has an ERA of 6-11. That is the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors. Corbin has given up 36 home runs this season. That is a record for most home runs allowed by a Nats pitcher in a regular season. The Nats cannot fix this guy. And that, to me, is as troubling as anything. Because while Corbin deserves plenty of criticism for struggling, you also have to ask this question. Why can't the Nats get him to be better? The Nats have done such a bad job for years now of developing pitching, but the Nats also don't do a very good job of fixing pitching. The Nats get guys and... A lot of those guys seem to get worse. You know, you could very much argue Eric Fetty has gotten worse. Joe Ross has gotten worse. Patrick Corbin now has gotten worse. And nobody seems to know what the fix is. Now, I'm sure the Nats are working at this. Like, I don't think the Nats just closed their eyes to this. But whether it's the new pitching coach, Jim Hickey, whether it has to do with an organizational process when it comes to handling pitchers, whether it has to do with the Nationals not embracing analytics as much as the Nats should. I think that that may well be an issue. Um, You have a Nationals organization that doesn't develop pitching, but also doesn't seem to know how to fix pitchers. And Corbin remains a mess. I mean, every so often he has a decent outing, but inevitably he's right back to getting rocked. And sure enough, Corbin got rocked on Saturday again this season. And I'll tell you something else about Patrick Corbin. So his season ERA is 6-11. He gave up the three runs two earned in the top of the first inning on Saturday. Do you know what Patrick Corbin's first inning ERA is now this season? 8-38. As bad as he's been in other innings this season, he's been really bad in first innings this season. A first inning ERA of 8-38. One of the great evolving trends in Major League Baseball over the last few years is the opener. Teams beginning games with relievers and then going to the quote-unquote starting pitchers. And there's a lot that is behind this, but a big thing is the first inning is traditionally the highest scoring inning because that's the inning in which teams bat their best batters. Here you have the Nationals in the midst of a lost season. The Nationals long ago tapped out on the season from a postseason contending standpoint with the late July sell-off. You've had these months of August and September as essentially a blank canvas with which you can experiment, with which you can try things, with which you can give things shots. And instead, the Nats have just continued to plow forward and do things like the Nats always do them. The Nats have had this real resistance to using openers. And I don't really understand why. I think part of it is just the Nationals are very traditional when it comes to pitching. You know, Mike Rizzo for years has talked about the Nats being a team that is based on starting pitching. 
And, you know, the Nats have had this thing of, hey, you know, we have a good rotation and our starters, they pitch well and they go deep into games. That's lovely when your starters do do those things. But your starters don't do those things anymore. Your starters aren't good anymore. Your pitching staff isn't good anymore. And especially with a guy like Corbin, who is a wreck and for whom nobody seems to have a solution, why wouldn't you try an opener with Patrick Corbin? Why wouldn't you say, hey, this guy has really been bad in first innings this season. Why don't we try something here? Why don't we start the game with one of our relievers? And then go to Patrick Corbin for, say, the second inning. Now, I know what you might be saying. You say, hey, Goldie, the bullpen stinks too. I know. But you tell me, would you rather just keep doing the same thing over and over? Or would you maybe want to try something different just to see how it goes? And maybe you stumble into something here. And as bad as an ad's bullpen is, I've got to think you've got at least a few guys who could do better than, again, an 838 first inning ERA on the season. But that, to me, is especially frustrating with the Nats. You have this wide open real estate here over these last two months of the regular season, August and September, with which you could try all kinds of things. And the Nats haven't tried like anything new. They just keep throwing out Corbin, you know, every five days and, eh, you know, he's struggling. Eh, you know, we, we got to work with him. That's it. Like nobody seems to have any real solutions. And the Nats don't seem willing to try anything substantially different with Patrick Corbin. A really bad season for him. Uh, you really can't overstate that. Again, the guy is the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors, 6-11 on the year. And then there's Josiah Gray. And Josiah Gray is a guy now who falls into that category of disappointing. And it wasn't that long ago that Josiah Gray was exciting. And Josiah Gray was offering real hope for the Nationals for next season and beyond. And he still may end up being good next season and beyond, but he's not good right now. Uh, Josiah Gray was bad in game one of this series, was bad again, struggled for a fourth consecutive start. Gray in the 9-8 loss to the Rockies at Nationals Park on Friday night, five runs in five and a third innings. He gave up just three hits, but each hit was an extra base hit, a homer and two doubles. And he issued four walks and a wild pitch. He did have five strikeouts. He threw 58 strikes versus 36 balls on 94 pitches, but Gray is having real control problems right now. He gave up two runs in the top of the first, issued a leadoff six-pitch walk at Garrett Hampson, despite him having been down to the count of 1.12. Gray issued a wild pitch. Gray issued a seven-pitch walk of Brendan Rodgers, despite him having been down to the count of 1.02. Gray gave up a first-pitch RBI double off the right field wall to Charlie Blackman on a hit that was nearly a homer. Gray gave up a one-out first-pitch RBI sack fly to Charlie Crone. Now, Gray did then settle down. He, after that first pitch RBI double to Blackman in the top of the first for a 2-0 Rockies lead, retired 14 of 15 batters. So you love seeing that, but Gray then allowed two runs in the top of the fifth, struck out the first two batters he faced, but then issued a two-out eight-pitch walk of Garrett Hampson, despite him having been down to the count of 1.02. And Gray then gave up a two-out two-run homer by Brendan Rodgers on an 0-2 pitch into the Rockies' bullpen behind the left center field wall to cut the Nats' lead to 6-4. And then Gray was charged with a run in the Rockies' three-run six, during which he gave up a leadoff double to Trevor Story on a 1-2 pitch. So you had a lot of things going on for Gray in this outing. You had the major control problems with all of the walks. You also, though, had Gray in a number of put-away situations, not putting batters away, having guys down 0-2, 1-2, and instead of recording strikeouts, or at the very least, instead of recording outs, giving up walks slash hits. It happened a bunch in the outing, as I just outlined. Uh, Josiah Gray now has thrown 53 and a third major league innings this season 
in his time with both the Nats and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Here are some of his numbers over those 53 into third major league innings. ERA of 624, whip of 144, home runs allowed per nine innings of 3.04, walks allowed per nine innings of 4.56. Those are not good numbers, okay? Now look, he's a young pitcher. He's a well-regarded prospect. You certainly don't ride a guy off after 53 and a third major league innings this season. But it's discouraging because Josiah Gray looked really good over his first five starts for the Nats. He's now looked really bad over his last four starts for the Nats. And if nothing else post the sell-off, what you were hoping for was that a guy like Josiah Gray could give you optimism for the future. And he was doing that for a while, but he's not doing that now. And so I don't know that anyone knows what to think when it comes to Josiah Gray especially when it comes to something like next season. Like if the Nationals are going to turn this thing around quickly and are going to be good again quickly, you would think that that includes a guy like Josiah Gray being good. Uh, He has not been good. He has been anything but good over these last four starts now. Remember, Josiah Gray and Cabert Ruiz, the top two prospects in the batch of four prospects who the Nats got back from the Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner in that late July trade. Uh, very mixed series for the Nats bullpen and losing 2-3 or three to the Rockies at Nationals Park. You had one game that was really bad. Then you had the next two games, which were actually quite good. So the 9-8 loss on Friday night, Alberto Baldonado and Kyle Finnegan combined to allow four runs in one and two-thirds innings. You did get good stuff in the game from Mason Thompson and Patrick Murphy. Thompson, a perfect top of the seventh. Murphy, a perfect top of the eighth, but Finnegan and Baldonado were real problems in that game, and Finnegan was the guy who stood out the most because he's been your closer since the sell-off, and he really was having some issues here. This was a second straight bad outing for Kyle. He gave up two runs in the top of the ninth, gave up a game-tying leadoff homer to Elias Diaz to left field to tie the game at eight, and Finnegan allowed another run on a single, a stolen base, a seven-pitch walk in which the batter was down in the count of 1.12, a sacrifice bunt, and a one-out tie-breaking RBI single by Brendan Rodgers for a 9-8 Rockies lead. But then came Game 2 in the series, the 6-0 loss to the Rockies at Nationals Park on Saturday. Ryan Harper and Sean Nolan, in relief of Patrick Corbin, combined for five scoreless innings. Harper and Nolan were terrific. Harper tossed two scoreless innings. Nolan tossed three scoreless innings. And then in the 3-0 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park, on Sunday afternoon, five Nats relievers combined for three and a third scoreless innings. Austin Voth, Tanner Rainey, Mason Thompson, Andres Machado, and Kyle Finnegan. And the two guys whose outing stood out the most, Tanner Rainey and Kyle Finnegan. Uh, Rainey tossed a perfect top of the seventh with three strikeouts. He looked excellent in that inning. Uh, as yes, Rainey is back now at the major league level. The Nats on Saturday recalled Rainey from AAA Rochester and optioned Wander Suero to Rochester. The Nets had optioned Rainey to Rochester all the way back on August 1st. So he spent more than a month and a half at AAA. Uh, Tanner Rainey had had a terrible season at the major league level. Rainey at the time of the demotion, 25 innings, 720 ERA, a 176 whip, and five home runs allowed. I know it's just one outing, so I'm not going to go nuts on this, but Rainey really did look good on Sunday afternoon. Again, perfect top of the seventh with three strikeouts. And then Finnegan bounced back. Uh, He tossed a scoreless top of the ninth, despite issuing a leadoff walk, which made you want to scream. Nats relievers have had this penchant this season for issuing leadoff walks. Finnegan gave up another one in the top of the ninth, a leadoff five-pitch walk of Ryan McMahon. But Finnegan ultimately did toss 
a scoreless top of the ninth, and he needed that. Finnegan entered the game having allowed six runs in two and the third innings over his last two appearances and blowing a save chance in each of his previous two appearances. The two biggest bright spots for the Nats in the series were the Nats' two best hitters, Juan Soto and Josh Bell. Uh, Soto in the 3-0 win over the Rockies on Sunday afternoon, one for four with a mammoth solo homer. Soto in the bottom of the third, a two-out solo homer of Rockies starting pitcher John Gray on a moonshot to center field for a 2-0 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 454 feet per stat cast. Soto was an at starting right fielder and number three batter in all three games. He in the series went three for nine with the homer, a double, a single, and four walks. He continues to get on base like crazy. Soto now this season has a major league leading 459 on base percentage, as well as a 531 slugging percentage and a 315 batting average as Soto and two ex-Nats, Trey Turner of your Dodgers and Bryce Harper of your Philadelphia Phillies are essentially in a three-way dance right now for the National League batting title. Uh, it's ridiculous that it's worked out that way, that you've got these three current slash former Nats vying for the National League batting crown. I mean, look, I don't get worked up about batting average. I think it is a very flawed stat. It does not take walks into account. It does not take power into account. But the fact that it's Soto, Turner, and Harper vying for that National League batting crown really is something else. Like, you, you can't make this stuff up. And Soto has caught fire. You know, he's been on fire for weeks now, and another good series for him in this series loss to the Rockies. Josh Bell had another good series. Uh, Bell on Sunday afternoon, two for two with two singles and two walks. Uh, Bell was in that starting first baseman and number four batter in games one and three in the series. He went three for six with three singles and three walks. Josh Bell now on the season has an OPS of 828. It wasn't that long ago that I noted that Josh Bell had crossed into the 800 OPS territory. He now has his OPS for the season up to 828. What a job by Josh Bell, who himself has been in a really good way for weeks now, drawing a bunch of walks, getting a bunch of hits, hitting with confidence, and being productive. And he was productive once again in this series. Uh, Some other observations from the Nats losing two or three to the Rockies at Nationals Park over the weekend. So Luis Garcia was an at starting second baseman and number eight batter in games one and three. Didn't necessarily do a ton in the series, but I did want to note this. So Garcia in the three nothing win on Sunday afternoon, one for three with an RBI single. He and the Nats one run six had a two out RBI single to right field for a three nothing Nats lead. The single was off Rockies lefty reliever Lucas Gilbreth, who had just entered the game. Luis Garcia is slaughtering left-handed pitching this season. Garcia now on the season versus lefties, a 9.09 OPS as compared to versus righties, a 5.73 OPS. Now, you always rather hit righties well than lefties well if you have to choose one just because more pitchers are righties than are lefties, like 75% of the pitching in Major League Baseball is right-handed. But uh, if you're excellent against one of them, there's value in that. And Garcia has been excellent against left-handed pitching so far this year. Great job uh, by Luis Garcia. Uh, Carter Keboom was the Nats' starting third baseman at all three games in the series. He did not have a good series. He is not in a good way right now. He's back to struggling. So Keboom in the series, just one for 12 with a single. Uh, Keboom in the 3 nothing win on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 4 with two strikeouts, left six men on base. Carter Keboom's OPS for the season has declined by 122 points since the start of games on September 5th. His OPS for the season has gone from 763 
to 641. He was doing pretty well for a while, and we talked about that on the podcast. He has not been doing well here in this month of September. Again, his OPS is down by 122 points since the start of games on September 5th. He continues to be inconsistent defensively, although he did make a nice defensive play on Sunday afternoon for the second out in the top of the eighth inning. Brendan Rodgers grounder, uh, Keeboom came charging in, made a nice scoop, and then delivered a strong throw to first base where Josh Bell made a nice stretch for the out. But Keeboom in the 6 nothing loss on Saturday, and Rockies three-run first committed a run-scoring fielding error on a one-out grounder by Ryan McMahon as Keeboom failed in an attempted backhanded stab uh, at the ball. So again, inconsistent defensively, and now he's back to not hitting. Uh, this is troubling to me with Carter Keeboom. Uh, also, Alex Avila announced that he's retiring. Uh, Avila, in a pregame press conference on Sunday, announced that he will be retiring at the end of the season. I don't think anybody is shocked by this. Uh, this season is Avila's age 34 season. Uh, he This season for the Nats hasn't played a lot, but he actually has been pretty good when he has played. He only has a 179 batting average and a 333 slugging percentage, but he does have a 347 on base percentage, and that's over 99 plate appearances. And he also has been good defensively. Alex Avila has a defensive wins above replacement for baseball reference of 0.7 on the season. That's quite good given his limited playing time. He's done uh, very well as well when it comes to throwing out runners trying to steal. Uh, I know for me, I'll always remember Alex Avila this season for what happened with him in early July. So Alex Avila ended up spending two months on the 10-day injured list due to suffering bilateral calf strains when he served as the Nats starting second baseman in a 6-2-5 inning loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on July 1st. This is one of the great indictments of the Nats' lack of depth this season, that the Nats were so desperate for middle infield help in early July that the Nats started their backup catcher, Alex Avila, at second base. And if you're saying, well, maybe Alex has, you know, shown that he can play second base. Eh, Not really. Uh, Alex Avila had never played second base in a regular season game in his major league career prior to that game. Ends up getting hurt in that game, uh, suffers bilateral calf strains, goes on the 10-day injured list on July 3rd, retroactive to July 2nd, and then isn't activated off the 10-day IL until September 1st. Now, I think the Nets probably could have activated Alex sooner, chose not to, essentially stashed him on the 10-day IL with the late July sell-off with the Nationals trying to play their young catchers, guys like Kbert Ruiz and Riley Adams and Tres Pereira. But if you're ever trying to put together the flashpoints of the Nationals 2021 season, Avila starting at second base is one of those points because it's one of the great examples of one of the biggest problems for the Nationals this season, and that is the lack of depth. Next up for the Nationals, a 10-game road trip, three games at the Miami Marlins, four games at the Cincinnati Reds, three games at the Colorado Rockies. Game one at the Marlins, Monday night at 640. Eric Fetty versus former Nats prospect Jesus Lizardo. There aren't many teams in the majors this season that have had worse pitching than the Nationals have had. The Orioles, though, are one of those teams, and the Orioles' bad pitching very much on display over the weekend. Those got swept in three games at the Boston Red Sox. 7-1 loss on Friday night, a 9-3 loss on Saturday afternoon, and an 8-6 loss on Sunday afternoon. O's now a major league worst, 47-102, and with a major league worst run differential of minus 276. And yes, the loss total 
is at 102. The O's did clinch another 100-loss season. Third consecutive 100-loss season for the O's in terms of seasons in which 100 losses are possible. Uh, 2018, O's went 47 and 115. Uh, 2019, O's went 54 and 108. Where, oh where, will the loss total land for 2021? An awful weekend for the O's from a pitching standpoint. The O's just have not been able to gain any real traction with their pitching this season. That is by far the biggest disappointment of this Orioles season. Not that anybody expected the Orioles pitching to be great, but you really would have liked for a few guys to have stepped forward, and you really haven't had that. Uh, Alexander Wells got shelled on Sunday afternoon, the 8-6 loss at the Red Sox, five runs in five innings. So Wells now has an ERA of 7.96 over 31 and two-thirds major league innings this season. You had two Orioles pitching prospects struggling in game two of the series. Lefty Zach Lowther in the 9-3 loss at the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon, three runs in three into third innings. It was Lowther who was the Orioles starting pitcher the previous Sunday afternoon, September 12th, in the 22-7 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Lowther in that game, seven runs in two innings. Also in this 9-3 loss at the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon, reliever Mike Bauman made an appearance, and he got rocked. Five runs in two innings of relief, raising his ERA to 11-42 over eight and two-thirds major league innings. And the Orioles starting pitcher in game one of the series was Keegan Aiken. And Aiken in the 7-1 loss at the Red Sox on Friday night, four runs and four innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, three doubles, and two singles. He issued three walks. He had zero strikeouts. Uh, He threw 88 pitches over the four innings. Aiken now this season at the major league level, 23 games, including 16 starts, 89 and two-thirds innings, a 693 ERA, a 161 whip. I mean, it's just been a nightmare of a season from a pitching standpoint for the Orioles. You can't overstate that. And if you're going to be pessimistic about the O's moving forward, the pitching is the reason to be pessimistic. The pitching does not appear to be in very good shape. And that's even with the Orioles having the number one pitching prospect in baseball and Grayson Rodriguez. The bright spots for the O's remain the batters, remain the position players. And the bright spots for the O's in this three-game sweep at the Red Sox were two of those position player building blocks, Ryan Mountcastle and Austin Hayes. These two guys continue to thrive. It's been so great to see that. So Mountcastle in the 8-6 loss at the Red Sox on Sunday afternoon got on base four times. He had a first pitch single in the top of the first a one-out seven-pitch walk in the Orioles' three-run third, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. A leadoff first-pitch single in the top of the fifth, and a four-pitch walk in the Orioles' three-run seventh. Mountcastle in the 9-3 loss at the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon. A first-pitch two-run homer to left field in the top of the first off Red Sox starter and former Nationals prospect Nick Pavetta. The home run, Mountcastle's 30th of the season. He in the game also had a leadoff six-pitch walk in the top of the fifth and a one-out full count single in the top of the seventh, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. So the Ryan Mountcastle campaign for American League Rookie of the Year continues. He now has a slugging percentage on the season of 4.99. now has an OPS on the season of 8.15. And Austin Hayes continues to do really well. Hayes in the 8-6 loss at the Red Sox on Sunday afternoon, one for four. Uh, He had an Orioles three-run third, had a two-out, two-run single on an 0-2 pitch and a stolen base. Hayes in the 7-1 loss at the Red Sox on Friday night, 
one for four with a leadoff homer to left field of Red Sox starter Chris Sale in the top of the second, despite having been down to the count at one point. 0-2, the home run going a projected 401 feet for StatCast. Hayes has raised his OPS for the season by 79 points since the start of games on August 25th. His OPS for the season has gone from 687 to 766. So the O's continued to hit fairly well. I mean, it wasn't a great offensive series over the weekend, but Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, those three guys continued to do well. The pitching is the thing. The pitching really has been bad this season, and these young pitchers just are not getting better, at least not this season. Maybe we see great improvement next year, but we haven't seen that this season. Next up for the O's, the three-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, the lone Orioles starting pitcher who has had something resembling a good season, John Means, will be the Orioles starting pitcher. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 149, will feature a special guest, Washington football team analyst Mark Bullock, who does excellent film breakdowns of the team uh, now on Substack. We'll get into what the tape reveals about Washington through two games. We'll do a lot on Taylor Heineke, the offensive line, the defense. Really looking forward to my chat with Mark. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to take it one game at a time. We'll continue to progress as we go through this season. Okay?